following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. We're going to do Moses this morning. Now, um, for many of you, that's a pretty well-known story. The baby in the bulrushes, crossing the Red Sea, freeing the Israelites from Egyptian slavery, things like that. But I'm going to try and do a whole life. And the reason for that is sometimes you just get these little snippets. Wasn't it great two weeks ago when Reuben did a whole Bible overview just in half an hour or so for us? And we got the whole landscape of things. And going to be starting next week, James, you know what, one and a half verses a week and kind of get through the whole book in a year or something. That's going to be slow. This is going to be kind of in between. We're going to do 80, 100 or so years of Moses' life, covers about five books of the Bible. We're going to find out what we can learn from the man. And because I'm a psychiatrist, we're going to do what you might call a psychological autopsy. Now, a psychological autopsy is often done after someone's died in suspicious circumstances. It's whether you're going to try and... Um, work out whether it was a murder or, or a suicide or an accident. Um, you're trying to piece together the way that somebody lived, their personality, their habits, their weaknesses, their strengths. It's often used by forensic psychologists for murderers to see what motivated them. And of course, let's remember Moses was a murderer, probably one of the low points of his life. So we're going to be talking a bit about that. But mainly it's going to be there so we can try to understand what made Moses tick. We're also going to try and learn from his mistakes so that we might not make them again. And we're also going to see how did he change, so that maybe we can change in the same way. Now, I'm not going to read lots from the Bible today, because it would take too long to, to read through five or so chapters, some of which is that sort of scary long bit in numbers with all the funny names. So we're not going to read that. What I am going to do is dip fairly heavily into Exodus chapters 2 to 7, and then I'm going to pick up a few other bits from Moses' life. So Hold on to your pants. This is going to go at speed. I'm going to give you a few Bible verses for those of you who like taking notes. Now, of course, we could look elsewhere. We could look elsewhere. Let's have the next slide up. We could look elsewhere to the Bible. We could look to the big screen. And there's all these different you know, portrayals of Moses. I mean, some of you might remember Ben Kingsley, the great actor. He's still around, I think, isn't he? But did this amazing account of Moses. Charlton Heston did the sort of big beard and the Ten Commandments bit, the guy who played Ben-Hur. There's all these things. Yep, Christian Bale has played Moses. According to The Guardian, his Moses was barbaric and schizophrenic, whatever that means. So Christian Bale has also portrayed Moses. Most of you know him as Batman. And another one, Val Kilmer. Batman, Moses, similarities? Don't know. Cape. Um, but, but Val Kilmer did the voice of Moses in the DreamWorks movie. And actually, out of all the Moses movies, the, the, the DreamWorks cartoon is actually the one I like. It's, it's, it's possibly one of the ones that sticks more faithfully to the biblical story. Although Val Kilmer also did the voice of God, which they're not the same person, I want to point out. So... When we're looking at this, when we're doing a psychological autopsy, one of the things you want to do is to sort of have a look at some of the roots in terms of where Moses' ideas came from, where his character came from. And he did not have a very good start, Moses. He was, first of all, he was born to a minority people. The Israelites were 
in Egypt at the time. They were enslaved. It was not going particularly well for them. The Israelites were basically using them to make bricks and build things and do all the menial household tasks. Secondly, he was given away at birth. Now, um, to be given away at birth to, to, to be adopted can be an amazing thing, but it's usually something that requires people to ask quite profound questions later on in life. We were watching Hunt for the Wilder People, the Wilder People, last night in our house, and some of the questions were, well, why isn't he, he with his parents anymore? And, and of course, the reason for Moses was that there was a massive genocide that went on. All the Hebrew babies of that age were killed by Pharaoh, and Moses was put into the bulrushes by his um, midwife, the Hebrew midwife who he happened to have. So he must have grown up with massive survivor guilt. Why me? Why am I the person who's left behind? And of course, he was then raised in a different culture. He was brought up. He was found by Pharaoh's daughter. He was taken into the Egyptian palace. All that kind of Hebrew stuff that was perhaps vibrating in his bones, none of that was given any attention to. He was essentially brought up as an Egyptian. Now, we don't know very much about Moses' adolescence. And actually, the Bible's not enormously strong on adolescence. You tend to sort of get a bit of the childhood stuff, and then bang, they're a man doing or a woman doing whatever they're doing. Even with Jesus, we get that little snippet where he's in the temple when he's 12 years old. So the Bible's not strong on adolescence, so we are going to refer to DreamWorks and the movie there. Um, there's this great scene in the movie where Moses is walking through the Egyptian palace with his dad, the Pharaoh Seti. And there's this frieze, this um, portrayal, engraving on the wall of all the Hebrew slaves basically being punished and, 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 and oppressed. And he says to his, his dad, he says, what's that? And his dad says to him, oh, they're my son, they are only slaves. They are only slaves. He separates Moses from them. He says, Don't, they're not even human. They're subhuman people. Maybe he saw something in them. Maybe he recognized the, the, the shape of the face or that something in the culture that reminded him. And he said, no, they're only slaves. So he basically, his dad was there during his adolescence saying, you're not a Jew, forget that. You know, you are actually an Egyptian prince. But of course, it was a bit of a, a mixed message because he wasn't really a prince. They never really let him forget. He was never going to be Pharaoh one day. And then he moves into his adulthood. I, I told you this was going fast, didn't I? So he, he moves into his adulthood, and a whole bunch of things happen in Moses' adulthood that, that form him and shape him. But the key thing is he kills someone. He kills an Egyptian. He's, he's walking through the, the, the slave area, and he sees all the slaves at work, and he sees an Egyptian overseer being slightly more harsh than perhaps he needs to, and he kills that Egyptian overseer. Now, Moses was effectively a prince. He would have been well within his rights to do that. But something grips him. Something changes inside him. He feels tremendously guilty by this. And he takes the body and he buries it in the sand. He hides it. Why was that? Psychotherapists might say he was scared with the power that he had, that he suddenly realized that he could kill. To, to kill is a, a scary thought. You know, he's this potency. Suddenly he's got this massive power. The first time perhaps he's ever really exercised it and he can't cope with it and he hides the body. But actually Moses' own confession there in the Bible is that he's got a fear. What I had done might be found. So he runs away. He leaves Egypt at that point and he runs away to a neighboring area called Midian where he hides away for 40 years living in the hills, basically completely different life. 
So that was Moses' sort of roots where he came from in his childhood, his adolescence, his adulthood. What were the shoots of that? What were the results of that in Moses' life? Now, it's always slightly risky to apply modern psychiatric diagnoses to biblical figures, but I'm going to have a go and I'm going to say I think Moses suffered from something called social anxiety or social phobia. Now, this isn't just being a little bit nervous. Um, some people, if they came up maybe and, and stood on stage, might be a wee bit nervous talking to you. I'm okay with you because... You're looking great this morning, and there's not too many of you. I get scared at quite big numbers when I'm speaking, but some people don't like public speaking. I'm, I'm not just talking about public speaking. I'm not just talking about a little bit of anxiety in social situations. We're talking about a real difficulty with this. So Moses had a whole bunch of things. Interestingly, on three occasions, Exodus 4 verse 10, Exodus 6 verse 12, Exodus 6 verse 30, God says to Moses, I want you to go and speak to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, don't send me because I stutter, because I'm slow of speech, because I fumble my words, because I never get my words out straight. Most people in the Bible who don't do what God tells them, tend, bad things tend to happen, let's just say. But on three occasions, God says to Moses, I'm going to stutter, I'm going to stammer. This is classic of social anxiety. People predict that gibberish is going to come out of their mouth, they, that their, their mouth gets parched and dry, and they can't do all of these things. Now, Moses, in his, God in his grace, gives Aaron to be a spokesperson for him. But Moses was having those cognitions. He's also got the behaviours. He's got frank avoidance. For, for some people, if, if I said, right, okay, you need to go and do some public speaking or you need to go into a social situation, they would run a million miles in the other direction. And that's the first temptation that Moses has, basically, is, is to run away. Moses runs away to Egypt. He runs away from snakes, as we'll hear later. Moses' first temptation is, is just to avoid things, and that's very typical. If you are going to have to go into a social situation, you tend to take a little safety behaviour along with you, something that you can sort of um, stand behind. And it, it, it could be a water bottle, so I've got my little safety water bottle here in case my throat gets dry. But he had Moses, he could stand, he had Aaron, sorry, his brother, he could stand behind Aaron, he could let Aaron be the person who would speak for him. And the problem with safety behaviours is they never really let you overcome your fear. You always grumble along with this anxiety because you're using your safety behaviour. As long as I've got my magic Aaron, then my words won't stumble. Now, actually, Moses' words are not going to stumble because God's speaking through him. But he believed and he used Aaron as that safety behaviour. He was anxious. He was panicky. He had this probably a dry mouth. He, he, he maybe could feel his tongue not working. He said, I'm slow of speech. Maybe he thought he had something wrong with his tongue. He, he's got a very poor tolerance of uncertainty. I, I don't know what's going to happen. It, it might go wrong. People make these catastrophic predictions about the future. And he said, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. Please, please send someone else. Have you got any reassurance? Have you got any proof that I can use when I go and speak to Pharaoh? So he's looking for cast iron guarantees that he's not going to stumble and stutter. And all of these are very characteristic of social anxiety. Now, as a result of this, and this is the situation of many people who struggle with, with chronic anxiety disorders or chronic depressive disorders, their, their self-esteem is lowered as a result. In, in Exodus 6 verse 13, Moses actually predicts that Pharaoh will not listen to him, i.e. by implication, send someone else because he'll listen to someone else, but he wouldn't listen to me. So those perhaps are some of the shoots of Moses's issues and, and difficulties and struggles as he was growing up, that he had social anxiety disorder, low self-esteem, a bunch of other things. I appreciate I'm making quite a bit of this up and it's conjecture, but I think you can kind of see where I'm coming from. But the consequences there are also more profound. We're not just talking about a bit of a stutter. We're talking about more profound consequences that come through. He had a shadow mission. 
Now, I'll explain to you what, what a shadow mission is. A shadow mission, John Ortberg, who's a pastor and psychologist in the US, says that a shadow mission is almost like your true mission. It's almost what you're meant to be doing. It's just slightly different. So, for example, Moses was meant to be leading the people of Israel through the desert, giving them water in the desert. He actually spent 40 years in Midian watering sheep and drawing water for sheep. Moses was meant to be a kind of high priest and leader for his people and certainly instituting Aaron as the high priest of the nation of Israel. That's what he was meant to be doing. Actually, what happens is he goes and works for a priest, Jethro. He was meant to be fathering and leading an entire nation out of slavery. What actually happens is he fathers a couple of children in, in Midian with one of Jethro's daughters. So he's doing this almost. He's doing this, I'm doing all of these things. I know I'm meant to be a shepherd of some point. I know I'm meant to be refreshing things at some point. I know I'm meant to be having some sort of impact that lasts beyond me. But he's, he's hiding away. He's doing it in Midian and he's not doing it where he should be. The other thing that starts happening is basically he becomes a complete moaner. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but read through the Exodus story and just see how much Moses moans. The people moan, but Moses moans an awful lot as well. There's all of these questions coming out of Moses' life. He's saying, you know, can you pick someone else who can speak better than me? Pharaoh won't believe me. Um, these plague things aren't working. Um, why have we come all this way out into the desert just to drown in the Red Sea? The people are hungry. Where's lunch? What are you doing? You've abandoned us. How have you brought us all this way to die of thirst? Moses is constantly moaning against God right up until about Exodus 17. We'll, we'll come back to in a second. And he is a complete grump really there's a massive difference in the second half of Moses's life but up until this point he basically is a complete moaner he doesn't trust God he's constantly asking questions and as a result God says to him do you know what you can't enter the promised land I wanted you to lead my people out of Egypt I wanted you to take them through the desert I wanted you to go into the promised land but you Moses and also you Aaron and also the whole of this generation because you moan you're not going to be allowed to enter the promised land all of that generation lied in the desert. What's the Sunday school song? Only Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, were the ones who made it through into the land that flowed with milk and honey. They were the only two. I'll test you later. They were the only two from that generation who got into the promised land. Everyone else died in the desert because they moaned. So massive consequences of this. And if you had to pick one word to summarize Moses, one word that he had there, it was shame. It was almost as though there was this stench of shame that clung to him. The thing that he said at the murder. Exodus chapter 2, verse 14. What I did, killing the Egyptian, it must have become known. He's traumatically ashamed of this life and he runs away. And of course, it wasn't just the specific incidents, but he was brought up to be ashamed of being a Hebrew. He was had them, all the survivor guilt that went with it, all those kinds of things. And Moses basically was massively ashamed. There's this big idea. What I did must have become known. And what I want to do is play you a, a video that just, just illustrates some of this, a video about the pervading sense of shame that many of us carry in our culture. It's a video that happens to only show women because it's made by Dove Cosmetics. But um, it, it would also apply to men equally well, that, that we have this pervading sense of shame, like Moses, that maybe it's our roots, maybe it's our shoots. And one of the consequences there is that we just carry this sense of shame around with us. Thanks. So that video sort of captures something of the sort of pervading sense of shame that perhaps goes through a lot of culture that we 
we tend to think worse of ourselves than is actually the case. You know, you could take a psychiatrist or psychologist point of view and say we've got these cognitions that jump into our head that tend to catastrophize and they, they come from our low self-esteem and they, they come from our anxiety. But I want to suggest that it's a bit, a bit more pervasive than that because Dove does not have the answers to the universe as far as I'm aware. Nice soap. But there's a deeper message to be understood here and it's this, this stench of shame that actually in Moses' life we see move towards being a sense of belonging. This massive sense of belonging. Let's skip forward three and a half chapters to right at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. And we get this wonderful testimony of Moses. Moses who knew God face to face. Don't forget Moses was the one who'd gone up the mountain. And when he came down, they had to have a veil over his face because he'd seen God face to face. He was, he was glowing, moaning to, to glowing. You know, a big change had happened there in his life. He would, he'd known God face to face. And actually, despite his imperfections, Despite, in many ways, his, his very average nature, he had this wonderful intimacy and sense of belonging with God. He, he'd moved from being insecure, from being isolated, from being unknown, through to being secure, connected, and being known. So how does Moses reach this place? And in the second half of this talk, what I want to do is explain a couple of key things that happen. First of all, Moses makes a key decision. And secondly, he goes on a long journey. So this is a picture of Bear Grylls. General tough guy, dude, snake wrestler. Um, and actually, Moses' big decision, I want to suggest, was that he had to, to pick up a snake, not the bear way. Now, I've, I've brought along one of our family snakes, to be pleased to know is, is this one. I asked my son, David, if he had a name. The answer is no, but we'll call him Snakey just here. So, so Snakey's pretty okay. He's a rattlesnake. I'm not quite sure if that's endemic to the area that we're talking about. But um, this is Snakey, and he's, he's fairly um, gentle and soft. But obviously, real snakes are not like this. They've, they, they've got these kind of sort of things and scary teeth at the front. So I'm, I'm just going to leave Snakey there. I'm going to leave Snakey just there. What he tells him to do is not to pick it up the Bear Grylls way. So the way that Bear Grylls is going to pick up a snake, you can see it here. He's kind of got it around the head in this sort of pincer grip. You ever seen that sort of 50 deadly animals thing? You know, you've always got a snake like that. So his teeth are away from you and you've kind of got the sort of tail here. You're sort of holding onto it and you're taking control of it. And he says, no, no, that, that, that's far too easy. Don't, don't pick it up that way. So we read, don't we, this wonderful story in Exodus chapter 4, which is going to come up on the screen. So burning bush things just happened. Moses is there having this conversation with God and he's asked for proof to go and see Pharaoh. And God says to him, what's that in your hand? It's a staff, he replied. I was going to bring along one of my staffs, but my staff doesn't turn into snakes, so I didn't. A, a staff, bring along a staff. The Lord replied, throw it on the ground. So he throws down his staff, his shepherd's staff, on the ground. And it became a snake. And he ran away from it. That's actually really, really, really good advice. Forget the Bear grills grip. First thing to do for snakes, run away. And the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and pick it up by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake by the tail, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. So Moses has got these three choices in terms of how to pick up a snake. Now, the best way to pick up a snake, obviously, is actually not to pick up the snake at all. It's, it's, it, it, it's to run away from it. And we've all been in situations where we've come to one of those big decisions in our life, and actually the best thing to do is, is just we want to run. We just want to leave it all behind and, and run away. The second thing we might try to do is you might try to control it. So you pick up the snake and you think, I've got this big decision in my life. I'm going to try and control it. I'm going to plan it. I'm going to strategize it. I'm going to talk to people. I'm going to dot all the T's, cross all the I's, and I'm going to be in charge of this thing. But Moses says, no, 
God says, no, pick it up by the snail. It could go anywhere. It could sort of come around like this and sort of grab you and get you. Picking a snake up by the tail is actually a really, really scary thing to do. But God is, of course, it's not about the snake, is it? Sometimes a snake is just a snake. But in this situation, it's not about the snake. Moses was being asked to make these three, this one decision with three things. First of all, a decision for obedience. I would suggest that this was a point in Moses' life where he had to say, I will. He had to say, I will to God. He never really had to say that before. The second thing, it was a decision against instinct. Instinct is to run away or to control the snake. But Moses had to go against it and to pick it up by the tail. We have to stop trusting what we know at some point. And then it was a decision for for vulnerability. At some point, we're going to have to take a risk. We're going to have to start doing things differently. If you don't do things differently, things are always going to be exactly the same. So one of the questions I want to ask you if you're going to journey away from shame towards belonging is what is your snake? What is your metaphorical snake? Now, we've all got slightly different snakes. It was great, wasn't it, to hear Noah's story earlier about this time where suddenly at camp he had to go and be a sort of one-to-one or a sort of prayer mentor. He had to go and speak to these people after the meeting and talk to them about Christianity. And I I don't know if that was a a particularly scary thing for Noah or just a generally scary thing, but it it sounded like a snake moment. It sounded as though it tapped into some of his uncertainties about his his level of knowledge about Christianity, but he went for it. He made a decision, he made a decision, didn't he, against instinct to run away, you know, for vulnerability, for obedience to God. I want to tell you my snake story, my picking a snake up by the tail moment. I'd just finished medical school and I'd done my sort of junior doctor jobs in in Cambridge in in the UK and I'd moved up to Leeds where my mum was from in Yorkshire and I had a great time there, began to a local church similar to this one in many kinds of ways and got involved in the youth work and the student work. And after about a year in Leeds, I thought, Actually, what I want to do is, is psychiatry. What I want to do is I want to spend the rest of my life working and getting to know people with, with mental health problems. And that was my, my passion and my desire. So I applied for the psychiatry scheme around the region. I applied for the, uh, the, the Yorkshire scheme for psychiatry. And the way this works is you also put in a few other applications around the country. I was feeling a little bit homesick. I'd been in Leeds for about a, nine months, nine months a year, and I wasn't quite sure if I fitted in. So I'd also applied back to Cambridge. But, but I was also really enjoying it, doing some great stuff there. And, and I put this application in, and in my arrogance... I assumed that I would get in. And I did have reasons to think that. So I'd been to see some of the local psychiatrists and talk to them, and the professor was going to be my reference, and I had good stuff on my CV. I got a BSc in neuroscience. I'd got three prizes in psychiatry from medical school. I'd got a peer-reviewed publication in psychiatry, which most people going into it haven't got. So I thought this should be signed and deal. I, sh- I should get this. So there's about six jobs come up in the Yorkshire region every year to do, to do psychiatry training, and I thought I was going to get one of those, and it shouldn't really be a problem. So the day before the interviews, I knew the interviews were going to be on the Tuesday. The day before the interviews, I hadn't heard anything. I hadn't had a letter inviting me or anything like that, so I rang up the office. I rang up the office on the Monday, and I said, um, hi, it's, it's, it's Rob Waller here. Um, I'm just wondering about tomorrow what's going to happen. And I remember exactly what the lady shed. I'd, I'd, I'd gone and sort of shut myself in the on-call room because um, I didn't want anyone to hear the conversation. I'd gone and shut myself away. And she said, I'm terribly sorry, Dr. Waller, you've not been shortlisted. You've not been called for interview. 
you're not going to be working with us. And I just remember those words, and my entire life just dissolved at that point. I didn't know what I was going to do. I wanted to stay in Leeds. I wanted to do psychiatry, and they weren't going to give me the job. I'd also kind of sort of resigned from the one I was doing. I hadn't done it in writing, but I'd, I'd kind of put all my eggs in one basket, and it, it wasn't going to happen. And I had the most miserable day. I just cried in that room. I had to sort of pull myself together, go back out onto the ward, finish the rest of the, 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 the day, and then I had to go home. And I, for some unknown reason, I got the bus in and I was going to jog home that day. Bad decision. It chucked it down. I got absolutely drenched going home. I got home soaking, cold, feeling awful. My flatmates were there and they say, oh yeah, we're going to go out and get a couple of beers. Do you want to come with us? No, I want to eat worms. Leave me alone. I'm just going to go and sit here. And I just sat and had a hot shower, mug of tea, Tried to phone up, my parents were out, everyone else was out. I literally phoned up about 30 people. Everybody was out or busy or couldn't talk or was driving or something like this. I eventually ended up speaking for half an hour on the phone to a hospital in the middle of the South African bush where I had done my elective because the only person who answered the phone was Victor. And he picked up the phone and I just blubbed at him for half an hour. And it was probably one of the worst, one of the worst days of my life. And the next day, you do what you do. You, you get up and um, go and talk to your pastor. Well, that's not probably what you do. You probably ought to talk to some other folk first. But on this occasion, I did want to talk to the pastor because he was my friend. I was doing the youth work and the, the student work with, and he was the associate pastor at the time. So I, I went to speak to him, and I said, I've got this problem. I want to stay. I, I like what we're doing, but I don't have a job. And he said, well, you've got to stay. And I, I said, well, that was really helpful advice. Thank you very much. Thanks for that. Uh, I, have, I don't have a job. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You've got to stay. It's, it's, it's going to be great. You know, God wants you to be here. So, so really helpful advice there. Uh, this was the, the sort of Wednesday, Tuesday, Wednesday by this point. And on the Wednesday, I thought, right, okay, let's make this decision for obedience, for vulnerability against instinct. What I did was I rang up around the country. I started cancelling my other applications. I'd applied to Aberdeen, right in the very tippy top of Scotland. How far away can you run? I, I rang up Aberdeen. I, I, I cancelled that. I, I rang up London, I think I'd applied to, and cancelled that one. It took me until the next day to cancel the one to run back to my psychological mummy in Cambridge to go back to that nurturing figure of my undergraduate days, which I'd really enjoyed. It took me until the Thursday to phone up Cambridge and cancel that application. So I literally was now jobless. Put the phone down to Cambridge. Phone rings, switchboard. Dr. Wally, you've got a call from the University of Leeds. Do you want to take it? Yeah, take it. Hi, we interviewed yesterday. Uh, we only filled five out of the six places. Do you want to come for interview next week? Uh, yes, yes, I want to come for interview next week. So, so I went for interview next week. And I remember going to the interview. I was expecting there to be a bunch of people they'd called in for this last place. I was the only person sitting in the interview room. I went in. There were two people sitting. And we basically had a chat. We didn't have an interview at all. We had a chat to them about where I went on holiday, sport, football teams, you name it, all that kind of stuff. And I got the job. And as a result of that, I was able to stay in Yorkshire, learn psychiatry, do what I did today. The two people who interviewed me are now the president and the head of examinations for the Royal College of Psychiatrists in the UK. Quite useful people to know. So, so as a result of all of this, basically, what is, what is your snake? I stayed in Leeds. The guy who, the pastor I went to have a chat to introduced me to my wife. Wouldn't have, that wouldn't have happened. Good things happen, as Ruben said, you know. So all of these things wouldn't have happened if I hadn't stayed in Leeds. So what is, what is your snake? You will have your snake, you can think about that. But of course, it's not just about a snake, it's also about a journey. And Moses also went on a big journey. 
So even after this big decision, even after this time in Exodus chapter 4, he, he carries on moaning, and he moans and he moans and he moans through the plagues, through the, through the manna and the bread in the wilderness. He's moaning, moaning, moaning all the way through, and eventually he hits his rock bottom point in Exodus chapter 17. He hits rock bottom, and it all really comes to this point where basically the Israelites, they're not just hungry, they're now dying of thirst. They're dying in the middle of the desert, they haven't got any water. And he cries out and he says, what is going to happen? What am I going to do with these people? They're ready to stone me. It's the low point of Joseph's life there, Exodus chapter 17. And the interesting thing, of course, is if we stand back and look at the whole Moses picture, it didn't just pivot around that one point, did it? We can see the roots and the shoots and the consequences. We can see the time where he reached out and picked up the snake and made a decision to follow God. But he was still moaning. Each of those moanings, I think, Moses read in the wrong way. I think he could have seen that as a God saying to him, I'm trying to get through to your heart, Moses. I want to get through to your heart. I want to get through to your heart. It was a series of encounters with God. And Moses grumbled. His response was to groan, to mumble, not to really get what was going on. But if he could have done, he might have had this conversation with God a bit earlier. We're not quite sure exactly what God says to Moses in Exodus 17. We don't get a great deal. We get a bit more detail in numbers. But something happens in that conversation because this is what happens to Moses afterwards. He wins a battle. He allows other people to lead. He allows other people to hold his arms up. He goes to his father-in-law to learn how to delegate and he manages to find a system to deal with all the various different problems that are coming to him. He goes up a mountain and he comes down glowing, as I've said already. He suddenly starts spouting and three and a half books of law and history come rushing out of Moses' mouth and out of Moses' pen. He destroys the golden calf and he leads them to the promised land. Leadership is just oozing out of him after this point. He's really led with a sort of bag over his head up until this point, if you look at it. And then all of a sudden, he starts showing us really how to lead people, how to take people through. And there's an impression that this conversation is, is deeper than the one they had by the burning bush. The burning bush and the picking up the snake, that was a key decision point. Whereas you get the impression, if you read it and read around, it's deeper. It's more to the core. Moses had got right to the end of himself at this point. He literally was down on his knees, he would not have gone any further at that point if God hadn't wrought a change in his heart. And it's also going to see a more lasting change. And it's this idea, if you like, that at this point, now Moses begins to work out, actually, God is for me. Actually, he knows what's going on. Actually, I'm willing to come face to face with God and let his heart meet my heart and all those things come together. So let me ask, what is your journey? What's your big decision moment, but also what's your journey? Is there a constant nudging of God in your life that you respond to by moaning or by running or controlling or whatever your way of dealing with it is? Are we afraid of what's going to happen when we get there? Do we trust actually that God is good and he wants to draw our hearts to his heart? There's a lovely verse in, in Philippians, which is kind of in Philippians 3, which is my life chapter. It just says, Paul says to God, I chased after that which first chased after me. Tommy Tenney, American youth pastor, has written a book called The God Chasers, if you want to read that. And it's these people, we, we chase after God because he first chased after that. And I think Moses was doing that with God in his life. God kept chasing after him. He kept saying, Moses, yes, I want you to go and speak to Pharaoh, but don't forget, I'm actually going to harden Pharaoh's heart. The, there's a bigger plan going on here. Yes, you're going to do the plagues, but at a deeper level, it really was a conversation between God and Moses and what they were having 
to say to each other. And then through it, yes, I'm going to provide for the people. Yes, I'm going to get people into the promised land. But really, Moses, what I want is I want your heart. I want you to fully know just how much I love you. So what's your journey to that point? What's your journey to belonging? To, to finish off, I'm just going to recommend three books. And there's nothing special about these books, but it's the beginning of 2018, and I, I wonder if you might read one book this year if you're serious about going on this kind of journey. Um, the first is a fantastic book. Um, by a guy, you can get all of these on Book Depository, by the way. I, I, I checked. It's by a guy called Alistair Humphreys. It's called Microadventures. The big idea about microadventures, I'm particularly talking... I suppose partly today to, to, to men like me who are in their 40s, middle of their life maybe, something like that, and perhaps got a bit, a bit stuck. A bit stuck in the work, a bit stuck in the job. Micro-adventures is how to bring the fun back. It's not, it's not a Christian book at all. It's a book about how to take your nine to five and make it into a five to nine adventure. So there's one fantastic bit, and he says, right, okay, finish work at five o'clock, go home, get on a bus and just follow the bus to the end of the line. Go up a hill, camp at the top of the hill, come back down from the hill in the morning, and go straight into work and just sit down at your desk at nine o'clock as though nothing's happened. And, and only you know that you spent the night at the top of a hill. And it, it's all kind of fun stuff like that. You know, circumnavigate your city, get on a bus and get off at the end stop and walk back and see what you see. Fantastic bunch of things here about how to sort of make things more, make things more interesting again. He's also written a book called Grand Adventures. So this is about, you know, actually, let's save up and let's go and canoe the Amazon. Or probably you wouldn't canoe the Amazon, there's crocodiles, aren't there? Take a big boat down the Amazon and canoe, canoe a safer river. But, you know, go and do something big. Probably for a couple of thousand dollars, you can go on a big adventure if you're happy to go budget. So there's a whole bunch of stories there from guys who've done big adventures. And a couple of years ago, we, we came on a big adventure to New Zealand. Moved from Edinburgh to New Zealand and came on a big adventure. And it's been a it's been an amazing time. There, there have been times where we have been brought literally to the end of ourselves and don't know what to do. There's also been times when we found out amazing things about God and about each other, about this beautiful country, about some of you guys. So as Frodo says in Lord of the Rings, okay, it's a dangerous business going out your door. And I'd encourage you to go out your door in some shape or form, either on a micro-adventure or on a grand adventure and see what God has got to say to you. Now, the other thing that happened two years ago is I was given this book called Falling Upwards. And this is a, a deeper book. And like I say, I'm particularly talking to people who are perhaps around about aged 40. It's called Falling Upwards, A Spirituality for the Two Halves of Life. And it's about how to do this journey that Moses did. How to, you spend the first half of your life building your container, building your family. You know, you, you, you create, you know, I know that I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm, I'm a psychiatrist, I'm an okay psychiatrist, I'm good at certain sports, not good at other sports. Generally speaking, don't ask me to play ball sports. You know, I, I know what my, my skills are. What do we do with the second half of life? What do we do with our spirituality in the second half of life? Because if we don't get it right, there's something in there about just getting stagnated, about cynicism, about creating another container, another life. What's the point in doing that? About, about buying a motorbike or, 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 or some other substitute. Um, I arrived here this morning in my cycling kit and my lovely wife had brought me these clothes to wear. But otherwise, I would have been one of those mammal things. Do you know what I mean? Middle-aged men in Lycra. Okay. So, you know, we, we have these midlife crises, don't we? Of course, I'm, nothing wrong with riding your bike. Nice Lycra. Nothing wrong with buying a motorbike. But are we in this for a midlife crisis? Or are we actually in a midlife cruise that turns into stagnation? Or 
do we want a midlife change? And my prayer is that we would have a midlife change. We would go on adventures. We would, we would read about falling down and then about falling up again. We'd struggle with those difficult verses of Jesus. The last shall be first. Pick up your cross and follow me. What, what do some of those difficult verses mean? I think this is one of the books that, that explains something about that. And it, it's, it's this time in their life, particularly I'm talking to, to my peers in, in this church here, men in the middle of their life, who've, you, you've built your business. What next? All you've got left is retirement and death. Okay? Um, I mean, come on. There's more, there's more to it than that, isn't there? There is more to it than that. So, not a midlife crisis, not a midlife cruise, but a midlife change. I'm going to finish with a prayer, and then we're going to go into a time of communion. And if the band can come up, please, that would be great. Dear God, thank you for your servant Moses and the lessons that we can learn from him. Lord, as we see in him things in us we, we long, that we long to change in ourselves, please help us learn how this might occur. Please help us see how he changed. Give us the courage, Lord, to make some of these choices at particular snake-picking-up times. Time Choices for obedience, choices against instinct, choices for vulnerability. Help us go on micro-adventures, Lord, so we can keep having fun and enjoy the everyday life. Help us go on a grand adventure, if that is your will. Either literally, let's do something at some point in our lives, or Let's do that adventure in our own hearts. Lord, thank you that when we fall, you lift us up. Thank you that when we come to the end of ourselves, that is when you start becoming real. Help us, Lord, to maintain this joy. Amen. We're going to move into a time of communion now, and I'm going to bring Snakey back again. Because Snakey, Snakey appears another time in the story of Moses. There's this lovely bit where, where Moses, the Israelites had carried on moaning. Moses, by this point, had got his head a bit more sorted out, but the, Mo- the Israelites were still moaning. And they were saying, like this. And God said, because of your moaning, I'm going to send venomous snakes among you. And the venomous snakes came in and they were killing an awful lot of the people. But Moses, at this point, God spoke to Moses. He said, take a bronze snake. Put the bronze snake, if I can do this, Put the bronze snake up on a pole. And if anyone's been bitten, they can look at the bronze snake and they can be healed. And that's what happened. People stopped dying. People started healing. And this is picked up in in John 13, verse 14, where it says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him might have eternal life. It goes on. You know the verse after John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, etc. But there's this snake bit. Bronze snake, Jesus. In both cases, something had to die. In both cases, something was raised up. In both cases, something took on the people's sin. In both cases, it demanded faith when the end wasn't in sight. And in both cases, free salvation was offered. So in communion, we remember the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You remember this raising up of Jesus and this dying and this raising up again by God. The bread is the wafer. It is the, the body of Jesus Christ which was broken for you. The, the blood, the cranberry juice, represents for us the, the blood of Jesus which washes us clean. Now Moses 
we heard, never entered the promised land. But under the new covenant, we can. We can be forgiven. We can receive forgiveness. We can be washed clean. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.